What if you were the only one who was following Jesus? What if there was no one else? None of your friends, none of your family, nobody in your community, nowhere you looked anywhere was there anybody who were following Jesus? Would you? Would you still follow him? What is it that keeps us from selling out totally and completely to the Lord? You know, we live in a culture and in a time when it's not popular to be a Christian. Matter of fact, it's even a dirty term, an evil term to some. So will that keep you from identifying as a Christian and saying, uh, I'm a believer. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe that he saved my soul from a sinner's hell that is real for any who reject him. Would you still believe that? Would you still say that? If nobody else listened to you, believed it. The lesson out of Genesis today has nothing to do with any of that except to say this. That describes Noah. He was the only one in his generation who believed God. The only one. None others. And yet he was faithful and faithful and faithful and faithful all the way through. If there is anything, if there is anything that happens or could happen that you were to look at and say, okay, I am not going to profess Christ. I am not going to be a Christian at this point. I'm, if there's anything that could divert you from the path of following Jesus Christ, then your faith is not a conviction. Your faith is a convenience. I believe when it's convenient for me to believe, but I have no conviction in my faith. And you can look at that about every belief that you have, do you believe that when you're the only one who believes it, or do you just believe it when it's convenient? If you only believe it when it's convenient, it's a convenience. Jesus calls us to be convicted. Convicted of following him. We've been looking through the book of Genesis, and as we look through Genesis, it's about the beginnings of everything. You know, and we've, we've talked about that. Week after week, we've talked about this and that and that. And, you know, the beginning of the world and the beginning of sin and, 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 and all the different things that, that we've looked at. But when we come to chapter 6, chapter 6 through 8, tell the story of Noah. It tells us about the warning that God gave him. And it tells us about the opportunity for salvation for everybody. And no one listened. Nobody followed. It, gave, it tells the story about the building of the ark and the story of the flood and the, the things that happened in the flood. Genesis 6, 7, and 8 are about Noah and the ark and the flood. And I'm going to deal with all of that today, but there are so many topics there that we could deal with. The story of 
the flood and Noah's ark is a story full of pictures of the way that God deals with humankind. And uh, I'm, I'm just going to hit the highlights of those for you instead of going through all of them completely and in depth. Uh, but, but there are these different subjects that we see as, that, that we look at and we see in the story of Noah and the ark. There's a subject of judgment. You know, God is a God who judges. He is a God of judgment. We saw last week that warning of judgment, and, and he gave it 969 years before the actual date of the flood. He warned the world of judgment. Guys, that's a thousand years. That's a thousand years almost that God gave that warning, the first warning. And, and, and you'll remember, uh, those of you who were here, that it's, it was in the naming of Methuselah, that Enoch, who was Methuselah's father, saw a vision of judgment. And when his son Methuselah was born, God gave him, God told him to give him the name Methuselah, which means when he dies it shall be sent. So Enoch forecast in the birth of his son that when this boy dies, when this child dies, judgment is to be sent. And as we saw last week, when you run the numbers, no, as you heard, I didn't ever put it up for you, huh? Sorry. As you heard last week, when we put up the numbers, when we, when we run the numbers, the flood was sent in the year that Methuselah died. And so the prophecy came true. When he died, judgment was sent. So there's a picture in the, the flood and in Noah's preaching that gives us the, the subject of judgment. There's the picture of God's mercy. And that's kind of what we looked at last week. Uh, and the evidence of God's mercy is that who is the person who lived longer than any other person on the earth? Methuselah. And he's the one who was going to die when judgment came. So God gave all of that time, longest time possible, for people to repent and turn back towards God. You know, isn't that just like God? He gave he, the, the longest possible time for somebody to repent, he gave. And then when it came down to preparing the flood and, and, and telling Mo, Noah and being specific with Noah, he still gave another 120 years. You know, it, it's a picture of mercy. There's mercy in the message of the flood. And then the ark itself is a picture of salvation. It's a picture of resurrection. It's a picture of our security in, in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, and, and all of those things are found in those three chapters of Scripture. But having said that, <laughs> when you read chapter 6, 7, and 8, or when you talk about chapter 6, 7, and 8, what's the question that everybody wants to have answered? How did the animals all get on the ark? Did the flood really happen? Is it something that really took place? And so, just real briefly, let's talk about the reality of the flood first. Um, and and I, would just, I would just start by saying this. You'll find your life a whole lot easier 
if you just believe what the Bible says and not try to piecemeal it together and come up with alternatives that try to all fit together, you know, you can just say, okay, I believe what the Bible says. Uh, and one of the parts of the Bible most subject to ridicule is the flood, a worldwide flood in Noah's day. But most of those who, who reject that flood really don't look at it very, very deeply, very sincerely. They just take their own distortions and, and, uh, and then don't believe their own distortions. And I, and I say, just, just to say a few things. We know that water covered the world. Every scientist believes that there was a time when water covered the world. Go to the top of the highest mountain and you can find water fossils uh, at, at the top. The, so, so the question isn't, did water cover the world? It's when did water cover the world? The, uh, uh, before there was land, there was water. When In the beginning, it says in, the, in chapter 1, that uh, the waters covered the earth and the waters were above the earth. And so when God created the land, he caused the land to rise up out of the water and uh, made a division between the water on the ground and the water in the sky, which is called the firmament. Okay? Um, so at one time, the world was covered with water. It's not only the Hebrew people who have a story of a flood. It's ingrained in the history of almost all ancient peoples that there was a time when the waters covered the earth. I, I read a thing this week as I, was, as I was looking at it. You realize that the diameter of the earth is 9,000 miles. You didn't know that? Well, let me make this statement for you. The diameter of the earth is about 9,000 miles. What's the height of the highest peak on the, on, in the world? world? Anybody know? So what? 29,000, 29, which is just short of six miles. Right? Or is it six miles? Anyway, somewhere around that. Get your calculator out and look at it. Somewhere between five, somewhere between five and six thousand. Okay, so you have you have a nine thousand miles of diameter, and on top of that you have six miles of the topest the the top thing. Do you ever wonder why when you look out at a picture of the moon, or, or you look at the moon in the sky, do you know it's always round? And when you look at the earth from out of space, it's always round. You don't see the mountain peaks and everything. It's because they're so minuscule. Anyway, the person that I was looking at said it, it's, it's, it would be kind of like looking at an orange. You know, the, the bumps are so small in comparison with the diameter. And so all I'm saying is this, is that it wouldn't take a whole lot for God to reverse the product process of creation, sink the land, whether the earth covered it. Now there are some who say, well, it was a good local flood. Bravo. That's a greater miracle than a worldwide flood because when the ark came to rest, it came to rest at uh, 17,000 feet. 
And so at least everything under 17,000 feet has to be covered with water. Does that include where you live? <laughs> Anybody here live above 17,000 feet? Anyway. Uh, you see why I say that's a bigger miracle than a worldwide flood? If it's only a local flood and it's 17,000 feet, where does, that, where does it stop? Yeah. At some place, water has to quit following gravity. One other thing, the size of the ark is described in Genesis would have as much room as 522 modern railroad boxcars. Two of every air-breathing animal could fit in only 150 modern boxcars. So there's plenty of room for the animals and their food in there. So all I'm going to say, the rest of all I'm going to say about the flood is if, if you want to believe what the Bible says, there's plenty of evidence and plenty of reasons to do so. Years ago, when I was pastoring in New Mexico, uh, we had a group from Albuquerque. Um, it, was a creation, it was a group of creation scientists. And these, are, these were men who worked at Sandia National Laboratories and uh, worked for uh, other scientific uh, places in Albuquerque. They were scientists. They had PhDs, master's degrees. Uh, one of them was a professor at the University of New Mexico. And we had them come and make a presentation to our uh, church about different aspects of creation. And uh, these, are, these are scientists. These, these aren't preachers. I mean, I understand if a preacher says something scientific and you don't want to agree with it, you know, that, that's your business. I mean, he's just a preacher. But these were scientists, people who are working on... Well, let, let me tell you what one of them was working on. One of them was actually a member of my church, and I talked to him a lot. Do you know what he was working on? He was working on what you know from Star Trek as warp speed. How can we get our rocket ships, our spacecraft, from here to Mars in warp speed? That, that, was, that was his project. At the, at the Air Force lab in Albuquerque at Kirtland Air Force Base that he was working on. Uh, anyway, I just say all that to say this. There are plenty of reasons that you can believe in the flood if you want to. If you don't want to, you can still be saved. You know, your salvation doesn't depend on believing about Noah. Your salvation depends on Jesus Christ and you believing that Jesus Christ died for your sins, resurrected from the dead, and in my way of thinking, that's a bigger miracle than a flood. Now, I'm going to say more about that. I want to talk about just some of the pictures. Picture number one, the warning of judgment. The warning of judgment. As we said, God gave Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam the first indication that there was going to be a worldwide judgment. 
And Enoch shared it when he gave us the name of his son, Methuselah. Uh, then he gave Noah that one anyway, and, and he, he then destroyed the world in the flood. The New Testament tells of a second flood. This one, a flood of fire, a judgment that is coming. It's in Second Peter, and I just want to read these verses to you. I'm going to start with verse 3 and read through verse 13. That's, that's 11 verses. But I want you to hear what it says about this judgment. Knowing this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. In other words, a very lustful people, a people who are, who are always thinking about sex and who are always involved in the, in, in the wanting and fulfilling the, the lusts of the flesh are going to come mocking Jesus Christ. Does that sound like anything you know? Know this, that in the last days, those are the last days, that's going to happen. And they're going to say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago. The earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Okay, so he reminds people that there was a time when the world was destroyed by water. And then he says, but do not let this, I'm sorry, but by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. You could say, let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like 969 years and 969 years like one day. Only now he's given us some extra years. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. In other words, every day he delays an end in the world is because of his patience. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and all its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will be melted with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Is your belief in Jesus Christ a conviction or a convenience? God announced destruction in the Old Testament and then gave a time for mercy, 969 years. He reverted in with, Moses, with Noah and gave 120 years. And then 
they went in and it shut up the the ark and it began to rain and there were seven or it didn't begin to rain yet but there were seven more days and then it began to rain I wonder if somebody could have been saved in those last seven days although the ark was already shut up in 1st Peter chapter 3 and verse 18 it says not only did Noah preach to them but the spirit of Jesus preached to them did you know that? for Christ who also died for one who died for sins once for all the just for the unjust so that he might bring us to God having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit so he, he, he is alive in the spirit in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison in other words one day in the past he went and preached to those who are now lost those who are in eternal prison well, who are those people? They were people who were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the destruction of the ark, construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Isn't it incredible how it all, it all fits together? Noah preached. The Spirit preached. For 120 years, how many responded? Well, it just depends. You could either say either zero or eight. Take your pick. So, Scripture teaches us, and Noah's flood shows us, that the judgment of the world is sudden. And the second thing they show, and you can find it in Matthew and in Luke, is that judgment will be sudden. It'd be as in the days of Noah. People were eating and drinking and giving in marriage and receiving in marriage, and then all of a sudden, it's over. That's the end. So there's the picture of judgment, and it's there. It's all through there, as it's all through the Bible. But there's also a provision made for salvation or for protection from that judgment. And that, in the picture of Noah's ark, is the ark itself. The, the ark represents Christ. There, there are so many representations of Christ that uh, you know, we, we could have made this the whole focus of the sermon this morning. But let me, let me just give you a few. Uh, number one, the ark was the only means of escape. There was only one means of escape. Not only was there only one ark, there was only one way into the ark. There was one door into the ark. There was not a door at the top for the birds to come in, and a bird at the bottom for the snakes to come in, and a bird in the side, and a door. Did I say a bird in the top and the bottom? <laughs> Tell me you know what I meant. Okay, there was there was not a door in the top and a door in the bottom for the snakes. There was only one door, and the elephant went in the same door that the snakes went in and the birds went in. No matter how big they were, how little they were, what they looked like, how they traveled, 
all the animals entered the same door. The earth, the eagle, swooping down from the mountaintop, flew in the door right above the snail that crawled into the door. They all got in the same way. Now what's that a picture of? How many doors are there into salvation? And that door is Jesus. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way except by me. Then one day, after the peace period of mercy had passed, the 120 years was gone, and anybody who wanted to could get into the ark. Anybody could go in there. Mo- Noah preached and invited all to come in, and any would have come in. But when the door was shut, no one else could get in. When the rain started to fall, nobody else could get in. And then one last thing. It was God who sealed the door. Look, Genesis 7, 16. Those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded him, and the Lord closed it behind him. You see, see what it says? They didn't all go in, and then Noah walked back to the door and said, anybody else? And then Noah pulled it shut. It's not the way it worked. When Noah and his family got in, God shut the door. And he sealed the door. And he said, nobody else can get in. And nobody can get out. You can't get out. So Noah's ark was brought safely through the water. And then on the 17th day of the 17th month, the ark rested safe on dry ground. The ark is a picture of Jesus Christ. How you get in, how you're protected while you're in, how sure we are that, you know, I heard uh, one of my favorite preachers one time talk about the analogy of Jesus and the ark. I mean, Noah and the ark and comparing it to Jesus and salvation. And he says, he says, let me, let, let, let me tell you that story again. And he starts telling the story. And he says, so, so Noah built this ark, and he built these handholds all over the ark. And he told people, now you guys come, and you hold on to that handhold, and the flood's going to come, and the, the waters are going to rise. And if you can hold on to that ark, you can be saved. I expect somebody to say, that ain't what he said. <laughs> because that's not what he said, was it? Hmm? He said, you get in the ark. God shuts the door. And it carries you safely through. And you get out on the other side. You don't have to hold on. Jesus is holding on to you. If. Your faith is a conviction and not a convenience. Well, there's there's a lot more. 
you know, we could we could talk about the unity of the Bible. We could talk about the unity of the message. You know, it's the same message from Genesis three to Revelation twenty-two. It's the same message of salvation. Same message of salvation all the way through. In Noah's day, people thought he was ridiculous. They laughed at him building a boat in a desert. He preached for 120 years, but no one except his family believed. But even though he was stood all alone, was it say, let all the world be false? God will prove what's true. And he did. And the day came, and only the eight were saved. Judgment had come. The Lord closed closed the door nobody else could get in God is a God of grace and his mercy is long lasting but the day comes when patience runs out and judgment happens and in between now and the end of the world patience runs out for people on an individual basis. In other words, it doesn't doesn't happen all at the end. It's got to happen before your end. So I guess I would just conclude by saying, are you in Christ? Are you in the ark? Is your faith a conviction? And not a convenience. That's great.